This morning we're continuing our series in um, 1 Peter, and we've learned that we are sojourners and that we are exiles, exiles, as Peter has said. And we've been in this sermon series for a couple of months, and we've learned what it means to be anchored in our faith. We've learned about loving one another well. We've learned about submitting to authority. We've learned about husbands and wives, and those are just a few snippets over the last couple months that we have learned. Ultimately, what we've determined in this sermon series is that we are sojourners. We're exiles. We're, this, this place is not our home. Our home is actually in heaven, seated at the right hand of God as co-heirs with Christ. And so while we're here and we feel uncomfortable and we feel this angst and we feel just uh, a little unsettled, it would make sense because this isn't our home. Our home is in heaven with God. And so while we're here, we live as best as we can and we live uh, through the example of Jesus and we try to convey that to others and we, and we witness to others and we pray for others and we ask them to come to faith and join us so that they can be sojourners and exiles as well. Sounds a little, a little opposite of what the culture tells us, but, but we want to invite people in to be sojourners with us and exiles, recognizing that their true home actually is not here. It's in heaven. There's portions in this text today that are actually going to get a little tricky. I was like, oh man, I must have drawn the short straw. <laughs> so I'm still kind of a rookie, and, and yeah, I'm a rookie, so trial by fire, so bear with me. Um, please don't get lost in, in the theological difficulties of this message. It can be really easy to do. I'm going to do my best to tie this passage together because it does have a beautiful flow, and even the difficult portions that are theologically unsettled still reinforce the overarching point of this message. So when we get to that text, I'm going to breeze through it. I want to give you a few different perspectives, but I don't want you to get lost there, so, so stay with me. Our scripture this morning is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and we're getting close to chapter 4. I'm going to actually start in verse 17, and I'm going to end in chapter 4, verse 1. And the reason I'm going to do that is because chapter or verse 17 actually leads right into to verse 18, and, and it just gives this, this beautiful like slice of bread on top, and, and then in 4 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 1, it gives this beautiful slice of the bread on the bottom. And so we'll start there in 17, and it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, eight persons were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, and powers having been subjected to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's challenging. We thank you that even though we don't have all the answers to what your word says and how it speaks to us, that, that you do have all the answers. This morning, Lord, as we unpack your word, would you speak through me? Thank you for, for speaking to me while I've been preparing, uh, but yet I submit myself to you, and, and I'm flexible, so, so if you want to do something miraculous or neat or new or veer me off the path, I'm open, 
Regardless, Lord, come. May this church hear your word. May it hear it in power. May it change hearts. May it open eyes. And may it draw people closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to keep in mind that Peter's writing to the churches in, in what was known in what was Asia back then, and now it's modern-day Turkey. The interesting thing is the people that he's writing to, when they suffered for doing good or when they came to faith in Jesus, this actually potentially meant that they were going to be persecuted for what they believed in. Just like any of the apostles or disciples, pretty much all of them were executed in some way, shape, or form. And so Peter's writing to them, and he's saying, suffer for doing good, regardless of the possible outcome. When you come to faith, this is a reality for you. You're painting a target on your back. But when you come to faith in Jesus, your home is not here. It's somewhere else. So fear not. What you suffer here in earth isn't eternal. You're going to end up somewhere else, and it's going to be far more glorious. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness. And so he's encouraging them, don't shy away from following Jesus, even if you get persecuted. I want to read a little section of an article that uh, Shane had actually sent to me from a man named Matt Walsh, and he writes for the Daily Wire. It's a little lengthy, but I think it really drives the point home this morning, and it says... Christians in the East forfeit their lives rather than forfeit their souls. And we forfeit our souls even though we could quite easily retain both. The church overseas has been under violent assault, yet the enemies of Christ have not won. They have diminished the church in numbers by killing its members, but it is strong and resilient where it stands. Our situation is exactly in reverse. Satan does not beat us with a stick. He dangles a carrot. He lulls us to sleep. He distracts us. He tempts us. Kill us? Why would he do that? We're no threat to him. A Christian in Afghanistan is a threat. He must be destroyed. It's the only way. But a lazy, soft, equivocating Christian in the West? There's no need to persecute him. He's not worthy of it. Just give him a television and the internet and let him damn himself. Plan... Sorry, Satan's legions in, in America to include agents within the church, of which there are many, have figured out the secret. Don't put a gun to their heads and tell them to stop being a Christian. Instead, just give them something else to do. Whatever you do, never make them afraid. Because if you do, you may accidentally awaken their courage. And then your plan is in trouble. Indeed, if your persecution produces a bunch of passionate, courageous Christians, you better go and execute every last one of them. Leave one alive. Let one slip through the cracks, and you're doomed. A Christian like that, one who cannot be shamed into silence, cannot be intimidated, cannot be made to conform, cannot be controlled by earthly forces, is powerful beyond all imagining. And all you can do is kill him. He's too dangerous. Your tricks won't work on him. He has the grace of God, and you have nothing better to offer him. I read this, and I was just like, ah. It just cut me. I thought, we suffer. We don't know what suffering is in the West. Our idea of suffering is is nowhere near what so many men and women suffer throughout the world. And, And... We live in this culture. God has blessed us. Do you realize that? God has said, I've placed you here in this place and in this time for a purpose. 
So we're here living this first world life while other people are dying for their faith in Jesus. And, and we get lazy. And we get relaxed. And then we, we think we're suffering or think we think we know what suffering is. And we really don't. I, I don't want to minimize certain situations. Steph and I, we have lost multiple children over the years. And before they were born, that's why there's such an age gap between Abby and Jordan. And we suffered that loss. It hurt. So I don't want to minimize genuine, true suffering. But a lot of the things that we think that we're suffering through or that we're having to endure are not suffering. I want to ask you guys a question. If you were put in a position where you had to choose Jesus and death or life, would you do it? In my mind, I'd say about 70-75% of the time, I'm like, yes, yes, I would do it. But there is that 25% of the time when I think about my wife and my kids, I think about you guys. I think I'm not done. God, no, I, uh, and I, I get afraid, and I just want to tell this person, whoever it may be, whatever the case may be, I, I don't know, Jesus, just like, just like Peter did. Nope, I'm not associated with that man. Let me get back into the scripture, and it says, look at verses 17 and 18, and it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good. If, it's that, if that should be God's will than doing for evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. When Peter uses that word for in the beginning of verse 18, he's speaking of what Jesus had already done. Suffered for doing good. And when you put those two verses together, he's alluding to the fact that we too may suffer for doing right, which, which we do in a lot of cases. Not necessarily persecution, but we do suffer. And it does affect us. So again, I don't want to minimize the suffering that we experience. It, it does affect us. So my point number one is we suffer for good. Steph and I over the years have worked with a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics, and we've had them live in our homes, and we've taken them to church, and we've shown them Jesus, and we've created meetings where they can come and they can learn about Jesus, and they can learn about how their addiction works in their faith, and how to fight their addiction through their faith, and created family and fellowship for them. And, and I would say about 80% of the time, they go back to that life. And they suffer in that life. And there's been times when Steph and I have been like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to help those people anymore. Not that they're different from me, but I love them. And I care about them. And now they're back in this life, and it's too painful. I'm suffering because they're in pain, and I know they're in pain, and there's nothing that I can do about it. I've given them everything that I can, and they chose that life over Jesus. Yeah, it's frustrating because we give a lot of our time. It's sacrificial because we give a lot of our time. But it's what God calls us to. So when they go, it's not necessarily about the time that we put in. It's about my heart being broken. It's about the fact that somebody that I love is dying, is perishing, is giving themselves away to something that, that, they, that they can't get away from. And so I suffer a little. And I suffer because I know that they're suffering. You guys seen the movie Gladiator? There's going to be a couple guy movie references in here this morning, so, so bear with me. I've got one that's probably good across the board, so hopefully we'll be able to keep all of you guys in attention. Um, Maximus, he's the, the general of the Roman army. And he's the men of all men. 
and he ends up suffering for doing good. The king ends up pulling him aside when he's on his deathbed, and he says, Maximus, I'm not going to give the throne to my son. I'm going to give it to you. You've honored me. You've served me well, and I know that you know which direction I want to take this country in, and so you can do that. My son's not in a place where he can do that. The son found out, and the son ends up killing his father, the king, and taking power before his king can make the announcement, before the king can make the announcement, and then has Maximus imprisoned, and Maximus becomes a gladiator. And he continues to suffer. His family is killed, his kids are killed, and he's suffering for doing what was right in the eyes of the king. Jesus did the same thing. He suffered for doing what was right in the eyes of the king, his heavenly father. He was ridiculed. Other attempts were made on his life. I'm talking about Maximus, but the parallel is there with Jesus as well. In the end of the movie, he's justified. The son ends up dying, actually at his hands, and he gives the last decree. This is what the king wanted. So go make it right. And you see him in, 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 this, in, in what I would call heaven for him in a field, and he's running his hands over the wheat, and his wife and his child are there. And so he gets to run into their arms. He suffered for doing good to the point of death. Jesus did the same thing. Christ is our best example of suffering. It says the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous being Jesus, us being the unrighteous. Even further than that, it's not just our example. He's the only one who is truly righteous and just. When we suffer, can we really say that we don't deserve it? Not really. I think we suffer because we're comparing ourselves to other people. I know I suffer like that. In the church, I suffer like that. We'll go into a meeting with a bunch of leaders, and this is definitely one of my, one of my own weaknesses and my own faults, and it'll be like this Q&A time, and someone will be just ask this super re- remarkable question, and I'm like, man, that was a good question. And then I'm like, immediately on the heels of that, why don't I have questions like that? Why don't I think like that? Gosh, what, can, Lord, can you help me have cool questions like that? <laughs> and, the, and, and the reality is, I, I don't necessarily think that way, and that's okay. And I get to glean from those great questions and those great answers, but I do start comparing myself. I'm like, man, I'm not like that person. And then, and then it even goes further. I'm like, what am I doing here? What am I doing in this? I must have snuck in the back door and nobody noticed. And it's just the enemy. It's, and it's just my own flesh comparing myself to somebody else. I'm not worthy of this position. I'm not. Jesus is. And Jesus called me to this position and that's why I'm here. But the enemy tries to use that and my own flesh speaks against myself and ridicules and compares and I suffer. I do it in work too. I compare myself to other businesses, other people who are more successful than myself, and, and I'm like, man, what do I got to do to make more money? I'm working hard. I'm personable. I'm really good looking. And, I mean, that should be enough, right? So we're comparing ourselves to other people, and then the worst comparison is when you're looking at the individual who isn't a Christian, and you're like, God. Why is he doing so good? He doesn't even believe in you. Why are you withholding from me? And the enemy's just dropping doubt 
and he's just accusing. And he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. Look at that guy over there. He doesn't even believe in him. And he's doing way better than you. And you work twice as hard as that guy. And we suffer. We suffer because we're not looking at the true standard. That's my second point, is Jesus is our standard. We look at him. We compare ourselves to him. You know what? We're going to fall short of that every day. But we, at least we know that. But that's what we strive for. We strive for Jesus to be our standard, and we try to live up to that standard. God, in his perfect justice and righteousness, took our sin, past, present, and future, and placed it on his son, Jesus, who's also perfect in justice and righteousness. He's our bar. He's our standard. Peter says this in that passage. He says, also so that we may be presented to God. It's like when you get engaged, Jesus has the ring box and he goes to his father and he says, look at this beautiful diamond that I have for you. And we are that diamond. We're that diamond because of what Jesus did. Before that, we're just a lump of coal ready to be burned up. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here, look. Look at how beautiful this is. It's for you, Father. It's for you, Dad. And dad says, I love it. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Jesus presents us to God, and we can't be presented to God without Jesus. He says in the Gospel of John, in chapter 4, verse 6, 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You guys watch The Crown? This is the reference that should go across the board. This isn't just the guy movie. Anybody watch The Crown? So I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, and I was just stumped. And this morning it came to me. So the queen, right? You can't come into her presence unless someone takes you to her. You have no access to her. Unless you're a family member. If you're a family member, then you can walk right into whatever room she's in because you are an immediate family member. And, and, and that hasn't changed. But if you want to have an audience with the queen, you need to be ushered in by somebody. And in our case as Christians, Jesus is that usher. And he's not an usher. I don't want to minimize who Jesus is, but he is the one who ushers into the presence of God. We don't have access to him except through Jesus. And so he brings us into the throne room before God and says, here you go. Even better, when we become Christians... Once that, happened, once that has taken place, when we become Christians, we're family members. We don't need to be ushered into his presence anymore. We have full access to God through Jesus. Full access. You don't even need to knock like your kids. My kids don't knock. They just come in. Why? Because they're my kids. They're my family member. They know they have that access. I'd like them to knock. <laughs> we won't get into that right now. It's a different sermon. <laughs> Lastly, Jesus did this once for all mankind, that passage says. This is where the text gets tricky. The tail end of verse 18, it says, but made alive in the spirit, and starting in verse 19, again, don't get lost here, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What is he saying? Because the formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
So I'm going to read verse 19 again. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who's he talking to? I went and dug and dug and dug, and I have three main theological viewpoints with regards to this particular verse. The first is that Jesus actually descended into hell after his death and proclaimed the good news to those who were there in order to give them a second chance at repentance, in order to give them a second chance at going to heaven. I'm like, no, no, he didn't do that. There's holes with this. One is because how the text flows, and it references Noah, and how if Jesus would have gone to hell to proclaim the good news to those who were there in Noah's day, why would he do it for just the people who were there in Noah's day? Why wouldn't he go there and proclaim to everybody that's in hell, you have a second chance. You can repent. The victory's won. I know you didn't do right in this life, but I'm here now to tell you, you have a second chance. Why would he just isolate himself to the people from Noah's day prior to the flood? That doesn't make sense. Another hole is that Scripture details out our repentance as an act that takes place in this life, not in the the next. Hebrews 9.27 says, we are all destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. We face judgment. We die once and we face judgment once. The second perspective is that Jesus' resurrection, in Jesus' resurrection, he did in fact go to the spirits in prison proclaiming to fallen angels, demons. But again, I think one of the holes is why would he go to just proclaim to the demons that were in Noah's day? And don't they already know Don't those spirits, those fallen angels already know? Shoot. We thought we won. Nope. You didn't. Why does Jesus need to descend down into hell to proclaim to spirits that are there? I got you. I won. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. At least not to me. However, in the verses after this, it does say that the angels, meaning fallen angels, and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, which actually supports this view. So I'm not asking you to choose. I'm not asking you to land where I land with regards to these three, three theological perspectives. I'm giving you these perspectives because at Southlands we preach the whole counsel of God so we don't have the luxury of skipping over a difficult verse that doesn't make sense. The third perspective, this is where I land, is that Jesus, Jesus in his spirit preached repentance through Noah in Noah's day. And those who were in prison are there because they didn't listen to Noah before the, before the flood. As I've studied this text, I think this is what makes the most sense. And there's a verse in 1 Peter. So this is still Peter speaking. Earlier in, in 1 Peter in verse, or chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, Peter says, this is a reinforcing point. Because I thought to myself, Jesus in his spirit went and preached through Noah? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when you take into account how Peter speaks... And he uses this almost exact same phrase earlier in First Peter. And it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours to be searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So he's saying earlier in First Peter that Jesus in his Spirit spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. So it would make sense to me the most in this particular passage of Scripture It's the same thing. Jesus' spirit was inside Noah, and he preached to those who were in Noah's day through Noah. 
and they didn't repent. And other verses, other passages, or I'm sorry, other translations of Scripture say that when he went and proclaimed to the spirits who are now in prison, so they weren't previously, but now they are, which speaks to the fact that he had spoken to them before. So again, I want to be clear, there's no real firm interpretation on this. Those are just the three overarching theological um, bents that, that theologians tend towards. I land in the last one, and, and you don't have to land with me or agree, but I, I do need to, to at least clarify them and give you some context for that. So what about Noah? Do you think he suffered? He sure did. God said, hey, build me a boat, and it took him decades. In 2, P, in two Peter uh, 5, in the message, it says that Noah was the sole voice of righteousness. What that means is he was proclaiming God's righteousness and justice and he's building the boat and he's, his neighbors are going, what are you doing Noah? I'm building the boat. Why are you building the boat? There's a flood coming because we're a wicked evil nation and he's going to save us through this flood. You need to repent. What are you talking about Noah? Have you lost your mind? Nope. That's what God said. You need to listen. Decades. He did this for decades. He had to have been ridiculed and mocked and shamed. People had to have laughed I don't know, they, they, they speculate on how long it took to build the ark, but it's not really clear. I thought to myself, it, I, we do know when the flood happened, he was 500 when he started, when God told him to build the ark. He was 620 when the flood came, so 120 years. What if he finished the boat in 60 years? So for 60 years, the boat sat there, and all of his neighbors were like, stupid Noah, that boat's still there. He was talking about a flood. That man's lost his mind. We don't really know how long the boat sat there for. And, and this is just my own weird little thinking. I was like, man, it might have sat there for a while. And, and Noah was further mocked and further ridiculed. He was suffering for doing what was right. He was suffering for doing what was good. Not only did he suffer then, then 40 days of rain come. And he's trapped in a boat with his family for 40 days. <laughs> for 40 days. That's rough, man. God was just driving that one. He's like, you're going to suffer for doing good, Noah. You're going to suffer for doing good. <laughs> I was going to go further. I'll just stop there. <laughs> Here's another text that needs a little more mining and clarification. I wrestled through this. It's such a beautiful text. It's such a beautiful passage. But man, the, the theological stuff and the things that Peter says is like, if, if you... Or, or, or somebody who really pays attention to, to these words and, and you read over them and you don't take the time to mine them, you can get really tripped up. But when you stop and you do mine them and you go, oh, suffer for doing good because there's future glory. We get to have a, a, a meal at God's table. And, and it's weaved all the way through this text. And in 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22, this comes after the, the passage where he goes, obviously after, where he, he goes into hell apparently and preaches to those who are in prison. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter is comparing the flood to baptism. 
It would seem that he's saying, just as Noah was saved through the floodwaters of judgment, so will we be when we are baptized in water and we confess our sins to Jesus and confess him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. The tricky part is what Peter says in this verse, that baptism now saves you. So it would indicate that in order for us to receive salvation, we actually physically need to be baptized. But that's not what he's saying. We were in a church in Tennessee, and we were visiting there, and uh, I'm not going to out the church or the denomination, but we were sitting up there. We're trying to find a place to land in the church or in, in, in our neighborhood with the churches in the surrounding area, and the, the pastor comes up at the end of, end of the, ser- the service, and he says, little eight-year-old Susie so-and-so is going to get baptized right now so she can receive her salvation. And Steph's like, what? She looks at me. I'm like, that's wrong. That's not that's not right, you know? And so we go home, and I'm like, here, it's, it's not, this is what it is. So I, I, I was able to show her, but I'm like, man, I can't believe that they're sharing that. I can't believe that they're saying that baptism is what saves you. However, this is the text that they're using to justify it. If you don't take the time to mine it, you will miss what's actually being said. What he's actually saying in this passage is, is that it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. It's as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal which literally means to make a serious or urgent request. When I became a Christian, it was a serious and urgent request. It was a life or death situation. Some of you know my story, some of you don't. But I will tell you that I was headed down a very dark road and I had been heading down that road for a very long time and it was gonna end in prison or death. Literally, physical, prison here on earth or death. I wasn't going anywhere else. So it was an urgent request. It was vital, it was to save my life, literally save my life, not just in your eternity, but in this life too. So that appeal, that appeal is actually what saves you. And Peter clarifies that in this text. It's the appeal to God for a clean conscience. We gotta remember that he's writing to these churches in what is modern day, now modern day Turkey. And what he's doing is he's actually saying, hey, be bold. Because baptism is a public declaration of what you believe. It doesn't save you. You can get baptized and saved simultaneously, but they are two separate events. In Mark 16, 16, it says that he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Believes, one, and is baptized. It's two separate events. Again, they can happen simultaneously. When you are being baptized, you can make the appeal in conjunction with the baptism, but it's all about the appeal. And we get baptized because of what we believe. It's, a pu- again, a public declaration. And I think what he's doing is he's encouraging those people in those churches back in his day, it's okay to get baptized. Not only is it okay, but it's a good witness and a good testimony to what you believe and to how you believe. And yes, it may cost you your life, but I want to encourage you to do it anyways. In John 5, 24, Jesus says this, Very truly, well, well I, very truly I tell, will tell you, whoever hears my words and believes, and believes, him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He doesn't say anything about baptism. This is Jesus speaking. So baptism is not 
what saves you. I want to be clear. However, if you make that appeal while being baptized, you can be saved. We are baptizing people. Here's the plug. We are baptizing people on Easter Sunday. So if you have not been baptized, please come. Please make that public declaration of faith. You want to show the world what you believe. You want to say, this, I've made this, this appeal and I've been saved. Now I want to show you. I want to be buried to my sin and I want to be raised again in Christ. Just like Christ was in his actual death, burial, and resurrection. So please come. We want to baptize you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want to urge you to make that appeal this morning. Make that request, and we'll baptize you too. But again, baptism doesn't save. It is an outward expression of what has already happened in our hearts. In verse 22, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' victory. So we suffer for doing good, and there's a subsequent victory. It happened with Noah. He suffered for doing good, building a boat, trusting what God said, proclaiming God's news to his people. They all perished. God saved him. He was justified. There was a victory for him. Jesus, he came. He suffered for doing good on every level. He took our sin on as his own. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was crucified. He was buried, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God. He has his victory. He won. And for us, when we give our lives to Christ, and we're buried, and we raise again in heavenly places with God because that is our home, we're justified. The victory is ours. When we suffer for doing good, there's a subsequent victory in heavenly places. So let's remember that. Let's remember that when we suffer, oh no, this is okay. This is temporary. It's only in this life. And we have eternity to celebrate the victory with God in heaven. Michael Eaton says, the unjust suffering of Jesus did not lead to failure. It led to the greatest triumph possible. How does this all to apply to us? When we're persecuted for our faith and we suffer, we endure. That's our third point. How do we do that? Well, we pray. We pray because it changes things. We pray because Jesus prayed and he's our ultimate example. He's our standard. We pray because we know that we can connect with God through prayer. We pray because we know that it does change things. We encourage one another. If you're here in the church, One of your responsibilities to your brothers and sisters is to encourage them. We spur one another on. We read scripture. It's the living, breathing word of God. It strengthens us and it refines us and it shows us Jesus. We remember again what Jesus did on the cross. And we recognize that he is the just and we are the unjust. And that he came and lived a life that we strive to live with him as our standard, and he died on our behalf. 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18 says, For this light momentary affliction, or suffering we can say, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pray with me.